and welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. It's a science podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. I am, as always, one of your co-hosts, your physicist co-host, Dr. Ben McAllister. And I'm Dr. Taryn Lobenstein, your marine biologist who's very excited for today's episode. And also a co-host. And yes, marine biology. Ooh, wow, way to, way to give it away early, Taryn. Hey, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm just so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you're new, we should introduce ourselves and our show. This is, as I mentioned, a science podcast, but it's not going to be like a didactic science lecture where we just tell you a bunch of facts and it's really dry. We're going to look at the intersections between science and history and politics and culture and how those things all play together to create the wonderful, amazing, and uh, frankly, uh, inspiring world that we all live in. I couldn't have said it better myself, Ben. Yeah, so we've got a cool topic today that we're going to talk about for a little while. In the middle, we're going to take a break to talk to a special guest uh, who is very interesting. Here's a little bite of them talking now. It's very easy from a social identity perspective to look at climate change and say, well, that person is either on my side or they're not on my side. Yeah, and very then, tribalism. Absolutely. You're in or you're out, you know? Absolutely. And that dynamic can instantly shut down something, a conversation or... And then, yeah, we're going to get back into our regular topic for the day. So, uh, the way we do this, if you aren't aware, one of us researches a topic in a fair amount of depth, and the other one is there. Like, I've done no research on this topic today, and I'm just going to be along for the ride with you, kind of like your guide on a journey of discovery. I'll be asking questions and, and learning about it with you at the same time as you, the dear listener. It's going to be a lot of fun, Ben. And and today, we're talking about a topic that is as I said, close to my heart as a marine biologist. Yeah, cool. Um, we're talking about sea turtles. Okay, sea turtles. That's very cool. It is. I mean, what do what? you What do you know about sea turtles? Like, what's your? Oh, because I'm what? I'm obviously super biased and think they're amazing. Like, what is your like cultural understanding of sea turtles? What springs to mind? What do you think's cool about them? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm going to be honest, when you said sea turtles, like, an hour ago, uh, when I got that message, I was like, whoa, that seems really specific. But I, uh, I guess I'm about to learn that there's a whole wide world of sea turtles out there. And I'm very excited. But my, my understanding of sea turtles, um, I'm pretty sure they live a really long time. Um, I'm pretty yes. sure there's one that knew Charles Darwin that either is still alive or only recently died. Um, or maybe that was a tortoise. Oh, uh, I think that was a tortoise. Okay, okay. Which is not so the same thing. <laughs> We're okay, so that's fa today. fact one. Yeah, okay. So, so sea turtles uh, live a really long time. Live in the ocean. Are cool. I know there was some of them are in Finding Nemo, that movie. Oh, we're um, gonna talk about that. <laughs> and they're portrayed as like surfer bros, I think, in that movie. I haven't Correct. seen that movie in a long time. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that's about it, man. I'm pulling a blank. They're turtles. They have big <laughs> shells. Um, sometimes if they are exposed to toxic ooze, they become teenage ninjas and oh, yeah, fight in the sewer mm. with a big rat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to cover the supernatural variety today. I just didn't have time to do that research, but okay, yes, that's fair also enough. a very important subset. I haven't actually seen the show. I'm just aware of it. What? You haven't seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Wait, hang on. You haven't seen any <laughs> incarnation of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? The comics, the movies, the no. nothing? No. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, we're not going to dwell on that because okay. we're talking about real turtles today. So we are. take us away. Okay. So we're just going to start with some general basic stuff to know mm -hmm. about the beloved turtles before I'm we I'm fucking excited about some... this because they're very cool oh, guys. Good. They are. They're so cool. Okay, so there's seven species of sea turtles, and there are five of them here in Australia, which is very cool. So to rattle them off, oh. we've got the green turtle, the hawksbill, the flatback, 
the leatherback, and the loggerhead are the five that we have. And then there's two others that we don't have here in Australia that are called the Kemp's Ridley and Olive Ridley. And that's all of the sea turtles. There's not that many kinds. Wait, wait, what were the um, last two? Kemp's Ridley and Olive Ridley. I are don't they know where they named after the same from. guy or person, Ridley, who discovered them? You know, I don't know. I can research that at the end of the episode and, and okay. find out. But <laughs> We'll figure that out. Okay. Okay, so there's um, but- seven varieties. That seems like simultaneously not many and also a great deal because, like, it seems like, you know, with dogs, there are, like, hundreds of different kinds of dog that there yeah. are. But I suppose sea turtles are already kind of a subspecies of turtle. Is that true? They are related to the other, like, land turtles or tortoises uh-huh. um but they're different like a land turtle i think the thing that springs to mind for me is like they can like pull their head into their shell as okay. like protection can but sea turtles, turtles not can't do that? do that oh no. my god what okay that's blown my mind so okay that's like <laughs> the thing we know about turtles wait wait wait. okay so so a sea turtle is a sea turtle different from like a snapping turtle or like a because yeah, i feel like if i go to the aquarium i'm gonna see like a little turtle swimming around but when yeah, i think of a sea turtle yeah. Okay, a sea turtle's like a big guy. Sea turtles are big guys, and they're totally, they totally live in the water. Like, that's their <laughs> whole big deal. Fun they guys, only come they out of the water, water to, like, lay eggs, and that's it. Okay, but, but to clarify, right, there's lots of different kinds of turtles. There's some that might be tortoises because they mostly live on the land, but then even amongst the ones that learn to live in the water, there's, like, freshwater turtles and lots of little kinds of turtles that, like, live in creeks and rivers, and then there's sea turtles, which is what we're talking about? Yes. So we're just only marine little babies. <laughs> they spend all their time in the salt water. Those okay. are the sea turtles. That's who we're talking about. Okay, so not a little turtle that you'd find in like a creek or a river. A big deep sea turtle. Well, in terms of size, so the smallest ones are 60 to 120 centimeters in length. For our right. American audience, that's two to four feet. Um, whereas some of the larger ones, like leatherbacks, can go get up to two to three meters in length, which is six Whoa. to nine feet. They can weigh that's up to 700 huge. kilos. That's 1,500 pounds. They're They're huge. So a, they're big ooh, boys. It's a big boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, like you were saying earlier, they, they do live a long time. It's hard to tell how old a sea turtle is because they're really long lived. You can't really um, ask it, can you? You can't <laughs> really not, ask it. Not going to be very forthcoming with that. You can't exactly no. count the rings either. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a tree. There's no rings to count. And they're also like migrate really long distances. So it's really mm. hard to like keep track of a single sea turtle whereas with like land turtles you can just like watch one for a really long time (laughs) (laughs) oh how do you get that job i I don't know well that's the the, probably the thing you were talking about with darwin was like somebody just watched one tortoise for a really long time it was like cool damn that's the same one yeah wow that's that guy who knew charles darwin amazing okay so when we say long-lived okay it might be hard to measure but like how, how long are we talking so on average, um, depending on the species, you can have between 30 to 50 years on average. Some have Ugh. a lifespan of up to 90 years or even longer. Like, we're really not sure. It's that very so hard to figure long it out. For an animal it's to live. It's so long. They're like humans. They can live just as long as us. Um, <laughs> See, which I just, they're just like <laughs> us. <laughs> they are just like us. I love them. And to, to pull in Finding Nemo briefly, um, because I had to, and because I, I think it's the most iconic like, modern conception of sea turtles, like you even mentioned it. So in the movie, you've got Crush and his son Squirt, and yeah, you're right, they're like Aussie surfers um, who are just like, righteous, and they're like riding the EAC, the East Australian Current, as if it's like a wave, and it's... Cool. It's very, it's a really fun metaphor, but... um, 
So, so, so Darren, just to take a little sidetrack there, in your yeah. experience of being an American expat in Australia, <laughs> what has your interaction with Australian surf bros been like? Is it Are they usually I'm... chill kind of total guys, or are they... I can't say that I've really spent much time with any surfer guys. I mean, I live oh, wow. in a landlocked place right now, so there's no surfers here. And then you I did lived do up your in... PhD in Queensland. Yeah, but there's no there's no waves up there. You can't surf because of the reef. It blocks all the all the waves. Okay, so if you're a surf guy out there, Taryn wants to meet you. All right, go on. <laughs> true, <laughs> go on, true. Okay, so there's a plot point in the movie where um, there's obviously Nemo, the little little baby. Uh, clownfish and then his dad Marlin and um, Nemo tells his dad that his friend thinks that sea turtles can live to be up to 100 and then later in the film Marlin the dad meets a sea turtle and he finds out that Crush is 150 years old which I tried to fact check really hard to do so I I found out that Crush is supposed to be a green sea turtle in the movie which could apparently live between 80 and 100 years estimate so right. 150 is like a bit of a stretch. A bit out there. I don't think and it's impossible. Very, like, yeah. But at any rate, like he wouldn't be like a kind of chill surf bro. He'd be like an old man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. little fact check there, but the I just truth I didn't know. In this art, Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> How am I supposed to show my children this panoply of lies? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to come back to it later because they did one good thing. Um, one good thing, Pixar. What about sea turtles. <laughs> okay. All right, go on. About then. sea so turtles. Maybe they so, could be old. Yeah, so maybe they could be old. In terms of uh, other things about their general life, um, they're air breathers, um, which <laughs> is kind of interesting, but they hold their breath for a really long time. It sounds what? like a slur that some sea creatures <laughs> would use against other sea creatures. Get out of here, breather. you air breather. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But cool. they're, you know, it's they're good at it. So the human record for holding your breath, how long do you think that is? Um, is that like that Wim Hof guy? Like seven minutes or something? What I found was 11 minutes and 35 seconds. Okay, wow. the longest breath hold. Um, cool. For sea turtles, if they're, it depends on what they're doing. So if they're like up and, up and moving and, and expending energy in other ways, they can last between five and 40 minutes on one breath. And if they're asleep, they can last for between four and seven hours without being that on the is, surface for That is, whoa, air. on one breath, yeah. four to seven hours? How does that compare to like, um, like dolphins and sharks and shit? Oh, that's an excellent question. And I don't know. Sharks okay. don't breathe air. So oh. not at all. But uh, marine mammals, I'd have to look it up. But they're very, they're very good at it, is the point. Apparently, yeah. according to Google's immediate result, a dolphin can hold its breath for seven minutes. So dolphins... <laughs> Uh, bullshit at all <laughs> in comparison to turtles. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. So they're very good at, at that. Um, they're also ectotherms, which is um, a fancy way of saying that they're cold-blooded. And that basically means that they can't regulate their own body temperature and they're dependent on external sources of heat. So okay. that will be important later on in today's discussion. Okay, cool. Um, all of them are either endangered or vulnerable. Oh, love, love that. All love of them. Love that. All well, of the seven yeah. species of sea turtle. Well, of them, there's also there's one called the flatback that we don't have enough data to be able to say whether or not it's endangered, okay. but like pretty safe Relatively that it safe assumption. Is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Given all the other so, data. That's yeah. what's called extrapolation for you non-scientists. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a pretty safe assumption, uh, and some of the threats, which we'll we'll spend some time talking about later on in today's episode, um, they have a lot of them. There's climate change, that old that old chestnut. You got sea level rise. You've got beach development. You've got fishing. You've got poaching. You've got plastics. They're all. It's all this terrible little miasma of things occurring at the same time uh, that makes it hard for these little sea, sea babbies to to do their thing. Oh. So it's it's sad, but. That's why we're we're doing some talking about them today, because because we're we're learning more about sea turtles and, and hopefully gonna take some positive action to to make sure they'll be okay. Us, we are gonna take some positive action. Are you gonna <laughs> we, have tips and it's advice? It's the royal we, the royal we, you know, okay, like cool. we the listeners. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing about what I can do about it. One thing that I wanted to talk about was their life cycle, which is yeah. pretty neat. I think I don't. Do you know anything about their life cycle? Um, I know that they have that really, I mean, I don't know if this is sea turtles or other kinds of turtle, but I know that there's that really fucked up thing where they like lay their eggs on the beach and then the eggs have like the, the turtles hatch and they have to try and get to the water before they get eaten by the birds. And it's like, Correct. A really, oh no, is that like all of them? <laughs> yeah. So this is how it works. Oh, We've got the mama horrible. turtle, she'll haul herself up onto the beach. She, then she'll dig a hole that's between 40 and 50 centimeters deep. And then she will lay between 50 and 350 eggs, depending on the species. Ooh, la, which is, la. like, a lot. And it can take a long time to do that. That's a lot of eggs. So did you um, say between 50 and, then, and 350? Yes. That's a very wide range. That's a lot. <laughs> How does it... Like, okay, yep, yeah, sure. And so something else that's cool is that um, because the eggs are, like, falling a distance into this hole that she's dug, um, they're actually soft when she first lays them, and then they harden later on. Wait, how does it... Okay, wow. Because so they're, like, shock-absorbent? Yeah, wow. Oh, that's very yeah, cool. Yeah, because otherwise they would just, like, crack, and then they'd all die. So, that, you know, adaptation, yeah. soft eggs. Adaptation, so soft cool. eggs, all right? Well, what, are you, <laughs> <laughs> what are you worried about? <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then once she's finished depositing her eggs, she'll cover the nest back up with sand. She'll like kind of disguise it. She might cover it with some like vegetation, like seaweed or grass or branches or whatever to disguise it. She might even dig like a decoy nest to like try and fool predators. And then once this is all done, which will probably take about an hour, she'll then go back to the ocean and she's like, deuces, that's it. I'm out. Um, and she might do that between one and eight times in a season. So wait, she could potentially be laying like 2,000 eggs in a season. I don't know. What's 350 times eight? Yeah, more than like two and a half thousand. Like that's a lot of eggs, really. So like, it's a lot I mean, of I guess, eggs. I guess if she was doing like eight, she's probably not laying three hundred each time. Maybe that's like a choice thing. Like it's like I'm gonna do fifty eggs now, fifty eggs later, or like <laughs> I'm just gonna fucking go three hundred and fifty <laughs> eggs in one. Let's do it. This is an excellent beach. We're just gonna lay it all out. See how yeah. it goes. And also important to say that that's is most likely happening uh, during the nighttime. Um, okay. So. Mama comes, she lays her eggs, she fucks off to the ocean. Then between six weeks and two months later, depending on the species, um, those babies are going to hatch, again, usually at night, and they'll make their way to the ocean where they will head out to sea for a few years, they will grow and become sexually mature, and then where they're ready to have babies of their own. (laughs) Cool. And that whole time they're on their way to the ocean, they're getting eaten by birds, right? Yeah, so that's a very, like, stressful time for yeah. little baby Yeah, imagine that. 
Like, being born and, like, immediately the most stressful thing of your life happens, like, at the second you were born. It's like, cool, now crawl for your fucking life into that water. Well, actually, yeah. So, one cool thing that I learned when I was doing research is that because of that, the first 24 hours after they're born is, like, the most dangerous time for a baby hatchling. Mm. And so, scientists have termed this this period the frenzy because what they do... Yeah, I know. <laughs> they just essentially just... They hatch, and then they swim for, like, 24 hours straight. They're just like, get me the fuck out of here. It's wow. so dangerous. There's so many predators, and especially when they're in the, like, beach and then the inshore coastal area is when it's the most perilous for them. So they're just they're just gone. They're just... They, they well, wake yeah. up, they're born, and then they're just, like, motor for a day. So do they have pretty shells, cool. like, right when they're born, or do they grow those guys later? I'm pretty sure they still have them when they're first born, but they wow. probably grow with them. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so. But <laughs> well, you've seen those little videos of like the cute little hatchlings. I mean, maybe uh-huh. this is, again just me as a marine biologist, but I've seen a lot of compilations of just like hatching little babbies that are just flippering their way into the water, and it's really cute. Yeah, so apparently they are born with a shell, which is great considering they're apparently very heavily predated. That would be very mean. To bring it back to movies, this is what I wanted to talk about that was good in Finding Nemo. So okay. I did sh- I just shaded it earlier, but like I want to give them props because um, a major component of the movie is that the dad, Marlin, is really overprotective of the son, Nemo, because the very first scene of the movie, Mar- Marlin's um, wife and like... 200 of their kids are eaten by a barracuda. It's like Spoilers very... for Finding Nemo. It's but the first scene! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. But so Marlon's like really overprotective. And so in the context of the story, um, there's an encounter between Marlon and this sea turtle. And the sea turtle like teaches him about giving your kids some like space and a sense Letting of your kids die. <laughs> No, and it's about how, like, in real life, the babies, like, hatch on their own, and they have to make their own way to the ocean. Yeah, and, and so it's most a good of them example, die along I think, contextually, <laughs> to have Marlon learn that lesson from a sea turtle. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess if in the fish kingdom, as it's called, you were going <laughs> to learn that from someone, you'd want it to be from a turtle. Yeah, I mean, cool. All right. So... Yes. And one last thing about um, their reproduction, which I think is pretty cool, is that um, they exhibit something called natal homing. And that's when, so, you know, the juveniles are off in the ocean, just like living it up, living the high life. But then when they are ready to reproduce, they travel great distances to return to the same area. And depending on the species, they can even return to the exact same beach on which they hatched in order to reproduce again, which is really, really cool. So it's kind of like going back home to hook up with your high school po- boyfriend. It is <laughs> right? exactly that. That okay, is what sea cool. turtles do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so the way that they do this Hey, Taryn, you're about by... to move back to the US, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Exhibiting sea turtle I am energy. not a sea turtle. I don't have <laughs> sea turtle energy. I'm a dolphin. I'm the, the cool girl of the sea. <laughs> So it's hypothesized that they're able to do this because they can sense the magnetic fields of the Earth and they detect how those magnetic fields change. Yeah, yeah. So that's how they're able to, like, navigate back to their (laughs) beach. It's amazing. They they have, like, internal compasses. Mm -hmm. That's, That's fucking sick. Yes. 
How do they it's deal with extremely like extremely cool? How do they deal with the magnetic field like polar realignment? Probably not very well. Polar realignment. Yeah, I know so what that this, is, but I'm blanking. It, it's a thing that happens like on Earth that the Earth's magnetic poles like flip and reverse every like several thousand years or something. Um, yeah, and apparently, I took geology like, in college. I remember yeah. something to do with this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do turtles deal with that? I, I've heard, mm. Anyway, no, that seems like a fucking blind alley. So just ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> well, my guess is that that the scale at which that's occurring is so slow relative to the life of a sea turtle that it wouldn't be a huge issue because I think it happens on really long time scales. Yeah, yeah. So, According to this quick Google I just did, it's every two hundred to three hundred thousand years that that occurs. Yeah, yeah. But yeah imagine yeah. being the sea turtle during that time. <laughs> like you're just like oh, I'm just going like, home. What? what the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> like your entire world just revolves around you and you're just like, ah, yeah, okay, cool. That would um, be wild. Okay, well, wow. that was really cool. Having internal good on them. They're radical. just, they're, they're such cool animals. So that is the, the basics. You now know the basics about the sea turtles. Congratulations. Cool. You are now a level one turtle expert. Sea turtle. Only sea turtles. <laughs> okay, cool. Now what I want to talk about is um, some more to do with Little, little baby, little baby sea turtles. Because um, when I was a young bu- budding scientist, um, I went and did a program that was essentially placed me into a research institution. And I was down in Savannah, Georgia. And one of the girls that I was um, living and studying there with um, did some research on sea turtles and how they're affected by light at night. And I thought it was really cool. And so we're going to talk a bit more about that now. So Oh, cool. So this is kind of one of the threats to sea turtles is night night lights. Lights at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See, not, not what I would have considered high on my list of apparent sea turtle threats, but apparently nighttime light, nighttime illumination. I mean, hey, if sea yeah. turtles are anything like my girlfriend, they really need it to be pitch black at night. Is that roughly true? <laughs> Actually, yes and no. They they don't like artificial light. So okay, what I talked about earlier was how baby hatchlings usually come out at night and then they make their way to the ocean. And a critical way for them to do that is that they don't just like know where the the water is. They figure out where it is by moving towards the brightest light. Because uh, if you're on a unpopulated oh, like it's about beach, to be fucking heartbreaking. <laughs> It is. It is. Correct. So the brightest light on a pristine beach with no humans is towards the ocean because the ocean is reflecting the stars and the moonlight. So that's where they're naturally going to go towards. What if the moon's on the opposite side of the beach from the water? I think it's that the whole ocean is reflecting like all of the light, like not just the light of the moon, but like all of the stars. And but when you've got humans like, you know, coming down and building houses and businesses on the coastline. Mm. Um, this disorients the little babies. And so oh, no. what can happen is that they hatch, and then if the light is too bright from human developments, they can head inshore where they will eventually die of predation, starvation, dehydration, or exhaustion. Any number of things, or being hit by a car, I guess, or something like that. Oh, that's terrible. So they like go the it wrong is. way. It's like when moths yeah. are attracted to candle flames or like light bulbs or something because they think it's the moon. Oh, uh-huh. that's it's bad real news. Sad. So we've known about this sort of stuff for a fair amount of time. Um, but 
like, I think at least 20 years people have been doing research on this. Um, but I did find a semi-recent study that I wanted to highlight. It was actually done okay. over in your home state of WA. Hey, and, shout um, out. What, and so what they did was um, there was this new technology that allowed them to attach tiny little trackers to tiny baby sea turtles. Um, which they did, and they were interested in seeing how that light was going to affect them once they were in the water. So all the research that's been done is about what happens when they're on the beach, but they also wanted to see, okay, if they if they do make it to the water, like, are they still going to be affected by this light, or are they home free? And basically, because all, all of this research is always very depressing, um, they found yeah. that even once they're in the water, um, the artificial light can still mess with them, and um, it made them stay in those shallow waters for longer, um, which, as we discussed earlier, makes them really susceptible to predation, and that would be very, very bad. Oh, so, God. light, still bad for sea turtles. But this is where we get into some, like, good things people what can, can you do, do and think yeah. about. Yeah, so people who live in areas where sea turtles are going to be nesting or you might find little baby sea turtles is you want to follow um, safe lighting practices, which I found a website that has a fun little list of things you can do. Keep it low, keep it shielded, and keep it long. So keep it low is keep the lights low to the ground. You keep them low so hopefully like it won't reach the beach as opposed to like having some big overhead light thingy that can be high up like the moon we don't want that um okay. you also want to keep the wattage low so that it's less bright keep it shielded so not just having like a naked bulb but like trying to cover it in some way so that it directs the light towards the ground immediately in that area as opposed to just shining over the whole area and possibly near the beach and then keep it long refers to the wavelength of the light which should tickle your physicist's brain because that's yeah. the, the wavelength of the light so what they want is longer wavelength light, which will have like more of a reddish amber kind of color. Um, so blue light, like what your phone's flashlight would have, that's real bad. Don't use that. All right. Those are the ways you can stop light pollution from affecting these these little baby sea turtles. Okay, well that's that's really nice to have some fucking practical advice to not fuck up yeah. the turtles. So now what I thought we could talk about a little bit is climate change. That old hey, chestnut. It's I in every. That. It's in almost every episode because it affects I love everything. About we the love fucking it. Fucking up the turtles. It's great for me. <laughs> I love the turtles. All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the deal. Sea turtles. We talked about earlier. They're cold blooded, so their temperature is highly influenced by the environment around them. So climate change. She's not good. We don't we don't like her for the turtles. And the reason for this is that for sea turtles, they have something called temperature-dependent sex determination. Oh, boy. Is that like when it's too hot, you really, you know, you think your determination is that it's not going to happen today? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. I do like that interpretation. Cool. What it yeah. means is... <laughs> Um, basically, the temperature at which the eggs are incubating actually determines the sex of the hatching sea turtle babies. Mm -hmm. So the warmer the temperature, uh, the more likely you're going to have more female sea turtles, and the cooler the temperature, you're more going to have males. So, enter climate change. S stage left. Um, uh -huh. And so, 
as the temperatures are getting warmer, that means more sea turtles are hatching as females. And so yep. this trend is known as the feminization of sea turtle populations. All these soy boy sea turtles. <laughs> is <laughs> slowly feminized by society. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's a big ass problem because you need both to be able to make more little sea turtle babies. So this is like a really big problem. And so for a long time, people thought it was like, this is going to be a problem like at some point in the future. But there was this study done in Australia um, it, back in 2018. And they were looking at the sex ratios of hatching sea turtles. So are they 50-50, male-female, or what are the ratios like? And they were comparing populations from the Great Barrier Reef. They had some populations from the south where it was cooler and some from the north where it's warmer. And in the cooler southern populations, they found there was a moderate female sex bias. So between 65 to 69% of the um, hatching turtles were female. But when they're talking about the northern GBR, uh, where it's warmer, it was Great extremely female biased. Great Barrier okay. Reef. Sorry. That's, that's a term for us, us uh, marine biologists. In the GBR. Re reef heads, as they call you guys. <laughs> they don't, but I don't hate that. Yeah. What about uh, reefer madness? All right. Go on. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, in the northern GBR, where it's very warm, we're talking about 99% of juveniles <sighs> and subadults were females. 99%. That's, that's fucked up. Fucked up. But hey, if, so... you're one of those, if you're one of those guys see turtles, nice. <laughs> That's like, you know, maybe bad yeah, for the for species like as a whole. Yeah, for like a couple years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad for the species as a whole, but like for those guys, like, nice. Yeah, so it's like real bad. It's real bad. So the, the, the results from the study basically suggest that um, the northern GBR has, producing, has been producing primarily females for more than two decades. And that the complete feminization of this population is possible in the near future. So, oh, a lot dear. of no bueno stuff there. But yeah, wow. I don't, so I don't want to, yeah. That like a race of like Amazonian women only sea turtles. <laughs> Although I suppose at a certain point they can't have that because yeah. they, yep, run out of mm -hmm, males to have there. Can they, Correct. like, go elsewhere to find the boys? Like, is there a... Yeah, but then you get into those issues of, um, you know, them returning to the same areas to reproduce mm. every year. So there are other sea turtles, but are they going to be able to find them? Mm. So the hope is yes. Uh, we don't know yet. That's still very much something that's going on today. Feels like we need to, to get out. some some sea turtle, like, dating apps, because, it, it, like, you know... <laughs> oh, no, like what would that be called? Um, Finder. Finder, yeah, but that doesn't really work. They don't really have fins. That is right there, though. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll workshop it. We'll work on it. Uh, we'll work on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is... That climate is, change, bad for sea turtles. Climate change, bad. But okay. I didn't. I don't want to leave us on a, a totally negative note before we go and hear from our um, interviewee. So, one thing that was cool that I read in the methodology of this paper is... And this is a published academic paper. I'm reading the methods. And they said that they captured the turtles... Rodeo style? <laughs> Which, obviously, I had to investigate. Did they, explain, did they explain what it was? Or is that like standard no, terminology? No, they did not. Okay, they did so not standard terminology in the sea turtle <laughs> test and tag field is rodeo style. Okay, please yeah. go on. 
I, I googled this, um, and apparently what it means is that you are riding on a boat, and then you just jump off the boat, you land, and you capture the sea turtle. Because oh those things God. are fast. They're so fast. Like, you know, when I was doing research up in the GBR, uh-huh. and um, I wanted to, like, take some pictures of sea turtles because they're cute, and they were there in the in the water. I wanted to take some pictures. I was like, yeah. oh, this will be easy. No. They can apparently go up to 22 miles an hour, or 35 k's an hour, when they're frightened. They're so fast. Yeah, wow. So, rodeo-style capture kind of makes sense. Amazing. And another fun fact that I found out while Googling this is if you Google rodeo-style sea capture, um, it turns out there was a video that went viral about this a couple Amazing. of years ago. Amazing. And the person in the video is a friend of mine from grad school. <laughs> <laughs> it's my friend Taka. He's, oh, he's the one in the video. That's amazing. Oh, that's great. So, news. marine biology, real small world. You, you meet all kinds of people, including rodeo-style experts. That's fantastic. So, with that, I think maybe we should hear from our guest. Sounds great. All right, so we have a special guest here with us today. It is a dear friend of mine, Nick, who is also a very cool researcher, and he's agreed to come and chat to us about his work. So thank you so much for being here, Nick. Thank you, Taryn. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're now, really now, happy to have Taryn- you. Just need to clarify, you've said he's a very cool researcher. Does that mean he's a very cool guy who is also a researcher, or that his research is very cool? Ooh, can I both? Ooh. Both. Wow. That's high both. praise. He's that he's the rare one where fun to talk to and fun research. Whoa. Wow. That's, That's high praise, Nick. You've got a lot to live up to now. Um, oh yes, and the pressure is on for me. <laughs> very cool. Uh, so, Nick, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, I'm doing a PhD at the moment at the ANU at the Crawford School for Public Policy, although I'm not really a public policy person, per se. I'm doing my PhD <laughs> That's uh, in the area of... <laughs> yeah. what, what alliteration. Yeah, 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 kind of, yeah, yeah. There's lots of that. You know, you come up with abbreviations and stuff, and they're always floating around the university. And sometimes you can just talk in, like, you know, abbreviations, but I try yeah. not to. But... Um, and yeah, I kind of do my research around uh, climate change communications. It's kind of the broad, the broad thing. But you know, you say climate change sometimes to some folks, and so sometimes I just say I do my PhD in social science. And so, depending on the situation, ah. I'll, I'll change the kind of title depending on. Depending already, on already, we're into the the communications <laughs> and the differences between yeah, well. how you talk to different peoples. Yeah, yeah. So what is it specifically that you're researching? I kind of am interested in how we frame climate change. And so from the perspective of communications. And so by framing, I mean like what kind of um, words or themes or imagery do we choose to talk about climate change? And some people will talk about it through a very scientific lens, for example. Mm -hmm. Some folks might talk about it through a a public health lens lens so they might say you know public health impacts of climate change or economic or they might talk about moral um, reasons to want to tackle climate change Mm -hmm. and so these are kind of frames that we can use ways to sort of bound climate change and put it into a language that people can understand or relate with that better fits with them and so instead of just adopting a, a scientific way of talking about climate change we try to look at, well, what matters to somebody and how can we talk about it in a way that's better to resonate with them? Hey, that sounds very interesting and very, very important. Um, like, it's yes. such a political, such a heavily politicized issue. I mean, you already touched on the fact that if you say it the wrong way, people's eyes immediately glaze over. How do you research that? It's not a, an easy one to have conversations about typically, and as we all probably know from experience, mm. you know, at the dinner table or whatever. Um, but so there are heaps of different kinds of 
facets of, of what we might call climate change communication research or perhaps environmental communication research. And so for me, uh, my PhD kind of involves a few different elements. So I'm interested in the first part, I want to try and understand what kind of frames exist out there for communication. What do people research on? What do we use to talk about climate change? It's kind of taking a stock take. So yeah. you mentioned a few already, the public health, mm-hmm. um, the moral aspect. What are yep. some of the other frames that you've found? Yeah. So like the main three are sort of the scientific, as you could expect, oh, right. environmental yeah. as well, and economic, like the three that stand out. Okay. Um, but other frames like morality, I kind of see saw a lot of religious framings as well, which kind of falls into morality sometimes, which is fascinating. And there can be other things like uh, messages of efficacy. Um, You can make changes on a personal level versus or saying, um, framing in terms of political conflict or something. So there are sort of a bunch of different frames which came out. But those three, like I mentioned, scientific, environmental and economic came out as the top three. Um, right. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best ways to chat about it. It's just like that is kind of That's how where we we're at at the moment. Exactly. It. And it might not be the best way. So it raises questions. Right. Yeah. And so what do, you, what do you do to kind of compare and contrast those methods? Do you like do surveys or what's the method? Yeah. So um, at the moment, I'm um, doing some interviews. So I'm interested at the moment to chat to people who are actually communicating climate change. So there's a lot of academic research, which is like, here's how we should talk about climate change, but not a lot of what do people actually who are on the front lines actually experience and what Mm. can we know from them? What can they sort of talk about? And so I'm doing a bit of uh, interview work with them in the hopes that I can sort of tease that out a little bit in the context of Australia. So through my previous part of my PhD where I was taking this stock taker frames, um, identified that the geography is really important factor when it comes to climate Ah. communication and, and frames as well, that it's not always easy for lessons to be contrasted over different different geographical areas. Hence, I sort of bound it within Australia. So when you say geographic areas, like, would you see differences in communication styles within Australia? Or are you talking like geographically, like the US talks about it differently than Australia does? Yeah, probably more the second. So like, okay. and, and, and it might be, it's more sort of down to um, the value sets and identities and, and, and the context, the social context that sort of goes along with those places. And, so, and so, you know, it's quite easy to, to kind of look for those generalizations Mm. And sometimes people want to find those generalizations. How can we talk about it in a way that's going to work for everybody and we can solve the problem? But it just doesn't really work that way. And mm. so you go to a different place and they care about something else or their, their history is different, yeah. their culture is different. And so the ways in which we talk about the issue don't resonate so much anymore. And so I'm trying to now do a bit of an interview, interview study um, talking to climate communicators in Australia. I'm trying to understand their experiences um, but I'm hoping to also do a bit of experimental work around framing as well. And that kind of dips a little bit into um, psychology research as well. So wait, how you would like run an experiment where you like ask people? Yeah. Things? Yeah. So you can kind of do like, um, depending on the design, I've been thinking a lot about the design because I want to kind of, I'm very much interested in how framing works to sort of open up discussions and, and sustain discussions between people. Mm. Whereas a lot of the framing work has been understood within these kind of what I'm calling like one-way communication contexts, like mm. people read an article about, you know, the public health impacts of climate change and does that make them more want willing to vote for a different party at the next election or does it make them willing to um, buy an electric vehicle versus a different frame, for example. And so it's like mm-hmm. test this frame and give it to some people, test another frame, give it to another bunch of people and give another bunch of people no frame and see which one has the biggest effect. Ah. But it sort of 
is a bit removed sometimes from a lot of a common way in which we communicate, which is just interpersonal discussion, people yeah. to people. We obviously do read news articles, although nowadays suggests that we're more sort of snack uh, readers of articles, that we read headlines and then we scroll through. <laughs> Guilty. I, yeah, me too. I get my news from Twitter. Yep, me too. And so we obviously <laughs> spend less time, <laughs> less time analysing. Twitter is both great and terrible as a place to get your news. <laughs> it is just so true. Well, sometimes you can like back calculate. When I'm, if I see a lot of memes, I'm like, oh, something happened. I should <laughs> follow true. that up by yeah. reading the actual news. <laughs> that is so true. Actually, when a new meme comes out and I don't know the context. So at the moment, um, I've been... Really looking at, like I say, sort of how the contexts in which we have these communications and the when frames are important. So some of the research um, tries to understand, as I say, which frames can lead to more effective communication or perhaps better, however you might define that, whatever the outcomes might be. But as I say, it falls short sometimes when you look in a real world context where communication is actually happening because people do get their snack news or whatever kind of news and those, those articles will contain lots of different climate change frames. So what happens when people get bombarded with multiple frames? We find that those effects that you can separate, that framing effect can sometimes disappear. Ah. So mm. the questions then get raised of like, well, is framing actually something useful in the first place? Should we just abandon it? And uh, there are some some voices in, in that sort of area. But I seem to think that there's a bit of a an opportunity to expand to understand how does framing operate in these two-way communication contexts? What is the role of it? Is it to open up a conversation or is it to sustain a conversation? Mm. And how can we use that to, to sort of close these divides that we have in society? Not so much to just trick people into doing something or to persuade yeah, them. Yeah. It's to actually build a deeper understanding of how climate change fits into your own life and a deeper understanding of how it fits into people's other people's lives as well. I think that's such important work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you'd, you'd be trying to come up with like, is the idea to come up with almost sort of like best practices for talking about climate change in your personal life in addition to sort of in like a media mass communication context? I think so. And it's like sort of coming up with um, some of the factors in, that I think are important when, when having these conversations. And so that's kind of what I'm also working on in my PhD at the moment. I'm trying to, to wrangle all of this literature and these theories to try and put them together into something that makes sense in the hopes that I can come up with some kind of framework that, that says, yeah, these, these, are, these factors are important, things like values, things like identity. So like social identity seems really important because it's mm. the way in which we position ourselves in regards to the world and issues, but also how we position other people as well. And so it's very easy from a social identity perspective to look at climate change and say, well, that person is either on my side or they're not on my side. Yeah, and very that, tribalism. Absolutely. You're in or you're out, you know? Absolutely. And that dynamic can instantly shut down something, a conversation or... Yeah, because it's like, well, you're not like me. Exactly. So we don't have anything in common. So absolutely. we're not even going yeah. to talk. Yeah. Which is not helpful to connecting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like so many other things, it's become so politically polarizing, which which sort of makes me think that this research around best practices for having these kinds of conversations, what frames are effective, possibly has applications beyond talking about climate change and maybe talking about some of the other just enormous tribalistic divisions that we seem to have growing every day around the world. Where, you know, you, you see someone and like before you consider what they're saying, you first consider whether they're part of your group or not. And then that kind of informs Absolutely. how much attention you're going to pay to what they're saying. Yeah. Do, do, do yeah. you see applications for, for this kind of work beyond climate change? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I think as climate change just 
like some people say, you know, it's a wicked issue because it, it, it incorporates so many different parts of society and requires action on so many levels in order to be effective. Whereas, you know, it, it, some people like to, to look back and compare, for example, with CFCs and say, well, why were we able to get good policy movement on CFCs and get CFCs? them um, chlorofluorocarbons or like these aerosols that were destroying the ozone layer. Right. And so, so that ended up like quite successful, you could say. Uh, and people say, well, why can't we do the same with climate change? And it just becomes because it's such a complex problem. And I obviously don't, we don't have time to talk about why it's so complex. But we can have guesses as to oh, why. Oh, come on. We can, we can solve this. <laughs> we can solve it. We have exactly. time. <laughs> exactly. But um, so it's just so complicated. But And so that's why I think it's it's a, an issue which um, means that, yes, when we do this kind of work, it can hopefully be applied to, to different issues that we face in the future because – Climate change as well is not going to look the same in the next decade. Mm. We're going to be facing additional challenges as well that we don't see right now or we're just beginning to see. And so I think the applicability um, is really important and I do see some of that in this particular kind of work. All right. Well, that was a lovely interview. I had a great time learning all about that thing that we talked about. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's such an interesting topic, and, and I had a lot of fun. So now we're back in now we're back in sea turtle land, uh, I guess. Welcome back. Thank we're in the sea. Let's go. Blub, 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 <laughs> baby. It's me. I'm a sea, sea turtle boy. So with that intro, before the break, we were talking about climate change and how it yeah. affects sea turtles. How bad. Now I kind of want to talk. It was bad. I want to talk about kind of the opposite in the sense of, um, Ben, I don't know if you've heard about this, but last year there was this big media thing about sea turtles that were being cold stunned in the United States. No, I've never heard about this. Did you see that? No, I've never heard about this. Well, there you go. So for Americans listening, yeah, you might have heard that, um, in... During last year, there was some really freaky winter storms that were happening, and there was all these stories about cold-stunned sea turtles that were um, being rescued off the east coast of the United States. So, cold-stunning is when temperatures are really unusually low in the ocean, and as we know, sea turtles, they're cold-blooded. They can't control their body temperature. And so also it makes them into boys. Oh, yes, correct. But this is when they're already like, you know, adults just like living in the ocean. Um, And so when the water temperature gets really cold, um, they lose a lot of body heat. And at a certain point, um, their temperature will fall so low that they lose their ability to swim. They lose their ability to eat. They can't even hold their head above water sometimes, which means if they stay at the temperature for too long, they just die. It's bad. We've all been there. (laughs) Well, I hope not. Yeah. But it's it's really bad for them. You know, this is something that happens fairly often. um, But what's what was unusual about last year's events is that it happened off the coast of Texas, which is pretty far south to be having a cold snap like that. Famously, but if you remember. Famously warm, but I, I'm, you might have heard about it. There was this massive winter storm. Uh, it shut off power for most of the state. It caused huge amount of damage, and that also ended up affecting the sea turtles. The scale of this cold stunning event was the largest they've seen in decades there. Um, but luckily, there are lots of sea turtle rescue groups that um, were actually able to save around 4,000 sea turtles uh, during that cold snap and, and prevent them from 
succumbing to to the cold, which I think is really nice. But wait a minute, Taryn. If it's called global warming, then why <laughs> are there so many cold snaps? A second ago, you said it was bad that the water was too hot for the turtles. Now you're saying it's bad the water's too cold for the turtles. Can these ding-dang turtles just make up their doggone minds about whether they want it hot or cold? And can you scientists stop changing the agenda? One day it's too hot, one day it's too cold. Make up your mind. You're just like those sea turtles. So first of all, sea turtles are like um, Goldilocks. It can't be too hot and it can't be too cold. Yeah, they're picky. Those picky turtles. All right. (laughs) Actually, no, they can't experience quite a huge range of temperatures. It's just if it gets really, really cold, it's not good for them. Okay. And so um, to answer the second point, um, the reason that we now call it climate change instead of global warming, (laughs) Benjamin, Mm -hmm. is because it causes more variable temperatures. So while you do get hotter temperatures in some areas... On average, you also get lots of things like more frequent and intense storms, like the one that was in Texas that caused the cold snap. So it's this not good for our little friends. Okay. New, well, then you haven't been listening to me talk <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more bad news from the climate for the turtles. It makes it hot for them and it makes it cold for them. They don't like it. So, okay. One more bad thing, and then that's it oh, for the bad Taryn, things. come on. I'm so dejected. <laughs> they're endangered, turtles. man. Yeah, they're no endangered. Shit. That's the this whole po- thing. It's been like a turtle snuff podcast. <laughs> We've just been talking about all the different ways turtles can get fucked up by the weather. Okay, uh, tune into the uncertainty principle. Oh, it's a fun show. Oh, yeah, I think it's really, you know, it's like science, but it's also kind of fun. What the fuck, man? Why didn't you tell me on this podcast? They just talked about turtles ultimately boiling and freezing for an hour. <laughs> Well, I have good news for you. This isn't about temperature, but it is about plastic. Oh, cool. Yeah. That chestnut. Good. <laughs> Love it. Love the plastic. It is it is depressing, but we'll, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that after this. Okay. So, plastics. Plastics are a problem. You know, they're all they're all in the ocean. Have you ever heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Are you aware yes, of that phenomenon? Yes, I have, but tell the listeners anyway. <laughs> There's just areas of the ocean, because they have... The ocean... Like currents, they go in like really big circles. And so there's these five ocean gyres, they're called. And in each of the gyres, there's like a plastic collection of all of the plastic that we've put into the oceans because humans are terrible. Yeah. Huh. Cool. So there's a lot of plastic in the ocean. And let me guess, the turtles don't like it the because they're picky <laughs> fucking turtles that complain about everything. Oh, water's Correct. too hot. Water's too cold. Oh, there's too much plastic. <laughs> When are yes. these turtles going to roll their sleeves assholes. up, roll their, sh- their shells up, and start doing some of the work? All right? When it's too hot in my house, I open a window. Turtles. Well, you've got opposable thumbs, Ben. They yeah. don't have those. Also anyway, windows. so they're like swimming around in the ocean, and the biggest problem with plastics for sea turtles is that they really they think that it's food a lot of the time. Oh, no. So it turns out that a plastic bag floating in the water looks a lot like a jellyfish, which is something that a lot of sea turtles like to eat a lot. Mm. And so they can they can eat the plastic, and then it's pretty gruesome what can happen after that. Either if they eat a hard plastic, it can rupture their internal organs. And if it's a soft plastic, then it can block their intestinal tract, and then they starve. Plastics oh, are bad. Are you telling me there's no kinds of plastic these guys can eat? <laughs> 
Well, actually, oh, that's a very good question because I was reading for for my job. Actually, I was reading a paper on exactly this topic, and now we get to talk about well, it on the podcast. Oh, so cool! Saves so me this some is time government, researching. Th- this is this is publicly funded research that's coming to you by the uncertainty <laughs> principle. I was reading this paper, and it was looking at how different types of plastic shopping bags would affect turtles, sea turtles. So they had regular old plastic bags, and then they also were using biodegradable bags because they wanted to see if there would be any difference in terms of how it would affect a sea turtle if they ate that bag. Um, ethically, they couldn't just like <laughs> feed the um, turtles feed the bags. No. Plastic bags. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, that's that'd be <laughs> For a fucked whole, up job. Oh, whole for reason. Like, <laughs> just oh uh, yeah, God. cool. You can't do that. So how they got around it is they were particularly interested in how how the bags would break down in the turtle's digestive tract. So, um, these researchers found they had to wait around until they could, like, find recently deceased turtles that were, like, otherwise healthy. So I think one of them... It's not important. They found recently deceased and not diseased turtles. Um, And they used the intestinal fluids of these turtles to see how those would break down the plastic bag versus the biodegradable one. And what they found was that while the biodegradable bag did break down more quickly than the plastic one, uh, it didn't break down quickly enough that it would prevent the death of a sea turtle that would have ingested it. So, turns out, biodegradable bags, not that good. No, not good specifically for sea turtles. But also, important question about this research. If they can't, like, give the turtle the bag, how do they know when the turtle ate the bag? So how do they know how long it's been in there breaking down? Oh, so they they didn't find turtles that had died from eating plastic bags. They just used the um, intestinal fluids from oh, those sea turtles I see, I see, to I see. run experiments to, yeah, that were, cool. like, in, I assume, some sort of... You know, simulation. petri dish or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's a simulation because they Some can't. Some kind of simulated turtle intestine. Yeah, I really want to know what that would have looked like, actually. But that's yeah, how I they don't do it. actually want to know what a simulated <laughs> turtle intestine looks like. But I guess that's why you're a marine biologist. Ayo. Okay, so <clears throat> don't rely on your biodegradable bags. So what you're saying is, even if you've got biodegradable bags, don't just huck them into the ocean and think this will probably be fine. Yes, generally yeah, okay. you shouldn't be hucking anything into the ocean unless it's. Seawater? I don't... Yeah. <laughs> nothing. Huck nothing. Good advice. We should get that on a, a bumper sticker and a t-shirt. The uncertainty <laughs> principle. Huck nothing. Huck nothing. <laughs> I really like I mean, the verb to huck. huck. I'm a big fan huck. of it. Like, huck, huck that over here. I think it's, do you uh, huck a loogie or do you hawk a loogie? Uh, I don't think do you, you, have you that either unless here? you're a 1940s street urchin. <laughs> I think um, <laughs> you probably No, people spit. say that in the States. Yeah, okay. They say hakalugi. Okay, cool. We're, well, we're whatever. Anyway. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to touch on about plastics is, I don't know, there was this viral video back in 2015, and I don't know if you saw it. It was all the rage in the marine biology community. But basically, it was a, a video of a sea turtle that had a plastic straw up its nose. Yeah, and someone pulled it, it out. And it was showing people pulling it out. And it was, like, really yeah, gruesome. Yeah, and yeah like, I saw that video. That was, that was really fucked up. Yeah, and, like, everyone saw that video, apparently. And it kind of sparked this movement to, like, get rid of plastic straws. And so after that went viral, there was these huge companies like Disney and Starbucks that were phasing out plastic straws. Um, there's cities like Seattle and San Francisco oh, and the States that why that happened? to ban or limit them. That's why that happened. It was because of wow. that video. 
Fucking A. Yeah. That's so, great. This is a really interesting issue, and that's why I wanted to talk about it, because on the one hand, it's good. And it draws attention to an issue, um, people get involved, and then they try and create solutions to that problem. But ultimately, it's important to remember that plastic straws are a really small, small, small proportion of all plastic waste that are in the ocean. I think it's less than mm. 0.03% of all plastic waste. So, like, while it's good that we are trying to reduce plastic in some respects, you know, straws, not necessarily the best target. Instead, it's like all plastics we should be thinking about. So targeting yeah. single-use plastics, like plastic water bottles, unnecessary yeah. packaging at the grocery store. Like, have you ever seen those pictures of, like, an Bananas orange that's wrapped been in plastic wrap. It is yeah. in plastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what it's are you doing, up. man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, hey, there's it's all already kinds got of reasons. a cover. Yeah. <laughs> there's all kinds of reasons that we should be getting rid of plastics. Like, if you don't care about turtles, this is something I read maybe an hour ago on Reddit, that there's a scientific mm. study Love. that showed a connection between phthalates, which are apparently commonly found in a lot of, like, uh, malleable, bendable plastics, and cognitive impairment in mm. uh, children born by, like, so if pregnant mothers are exposed what? to these plastics. So, yeah. If that, if you don't care about the turtles, maybe you care about human babies. Also, apparently they had smaller dicks, but that, that was a secondary finding. <laughs> the sea turtles? <laughs> no, the human babies that had the no, cognitive the impairment after oh. their mothers were exposed to the phthalates. Oh, wow, that's wild. Yeah. Wait, is that in like, what kind of plastic is that? Phthalates. They're apparently found in a lot of cheap, flimsy, single-use plasticky stuff. They're the worst. Single-use plastics. They're the worst. Mm. And, and that sort of leads me into another point that I want to make about sea turtles today. And mm. it's the question of, like, why are we even talking about sea turtles in the first place? Well, I got to say, Saren, I asked that very same question when you told me that this episode was about sea turtles. <laughs> but I've learned a lot of very interesting and cool things about them over the last 45 minutes. So, yeah, tell me more. Why do I care about them? For me, I don't know about you, but whenever I see, like, a picture of a sea turtle or a little gif of, like, a sea turtle, like, a little baby one, like, swimming into the ocean, being all cute, um, it just, it fills my heart with happiness. Like, it's just a, it, it's a cute, really sweet-looking thing, and I want to care for it. It, like, it t gets my, like, little baby instincts. Like, it makes me want to care for it. And, and there's sort of a term for this in... <laughs> <laughs> this is a long walk. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> There's a term for this in the biological slash conservation communities, and it's the term charismatic megafauna. Whoa. So That's yeah. a fucking cool name that it is. you can have for a thing. But it's just a jargony way of saying, like, a cute or awe-inspiring animal that is big enough that we can see it with our eyes and that humans okay. are into. So is that the definition of meh? <laughs> we're all like super into we all think it's really cool and we really dig it and we vibe it um, yeah we vibe is, the sea turtles sorry so is is like big enough to see the definition of megafauna i thought megafauna you know, were like big yeah that's actually a good question i think because rarely is somebody like oh you know the cute little microscopic amoeba mm, i want to save it because we can't relate to it so i think when it when taken together Charismatic megafauna is referring to things that we relate to, that we humanize and, and think of. We think of the stories of the mother calf being, the mother whale being separated from her calf, and it's so sad. And we think about 
our mothers and how sad it would be if they were separated from their children. Oh, like, we love we're to able do to that. humanize them. We love we, to do we that. We really do. To, to but, animals and inanimate objects. We do. We, we love humanizing things. We're storytellers, you know? That's what mm. makes us people. And so when you're an environment, environmentalist or a conservationist, they use stories about charismatic megafauna, like sea turtles or polar bears or whales. They talk about how endangered they are, how at risk they are, in order to help generate support or funding for their causes. Yeah, it's kind of so, like how when you're talking yeah. to like politicians... Or whatever uh, groups of people that are trying to convince of things. I shouldn't single out politicians. This is generally true mm-hmm. of human beings. Um, facts and figures tend to be less effective than emotional stories. And like exactly. as scientists, that can bother us a little bit because we're sort of like, well, you know, the data tells you that the world's on fire. But if that, you know, that rarely is perve- like persuasive, and instead you need to be like, my grandmother's house is underwater, <laughs> sir. And they're like, oh my goodness, we must do something about this. Yeah, I mean, it's a classical way of the way humans think and relate to the world. And it's not necessarily means that there's something wrong with it. I mean, yes, definitely when you're talking to a science scientist, they'd much rather you, you're compelled by numbers. But that doesn't work for everyone, and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, it means that those stories are useful. We have a visceral reaction to a sea sea turtle with a plastic straw up its nose, and that's useful for generating action and money, and then you can use that money to go towards less glamorous things, like, Uh, you know... Stoats and voles. Yeah, the sad... Like, what's the saddest animal name you think of? Like, the sad-nosed bowl. The, the, the blobfish is clearly the saddest animal. The blobfish. Animal. Oh, it really is. <laughs> it doesn't look like that underwater, by the way. It's just when you take it out of the water that it looks so <laughs> jelly-like. And if you, listener, have never seen a blobfish, do yourself a favor. Oh, please. The, please go look at it. Yeah, but hey, they need our conservation as well. Okay, so what you're saying is we can kind of, like prop up these charismatic megafauna like sea turtles as sort of like the poster children that we use to get in the money and then when we have the money we go thanks for the money suckers i'm gonna use this to conserve (laughs) the rare african blobfish (laughs) well i mean it works and because the important thing is to remember these animals are charismatic but they're not always going to be the most important animals in a ecosystem you know every animal has a role to play and if we spend all our money on the sea turtles and none of it on anything else or perhaps um protecting their habitats then that wouldn't be an effective use of our money anyway and that also doesn't help the sea turtles long term if everything that they eat exactly yeah yeah you kind (laughs) of need that yeah um and in fact i was reading a paper in a law journal which is a thing that i don't do very often and I read that the um, Endangered Species Act, which is one of the strongest environmental laws in the United States, was passed essentially as something to protect endangered charismatic megafauna, like the bald eagle. And then it has become like the most strong environmental legislation that we have in the States. So like charismatic megafauna, they get it done, you know? Yeah, they have an important role to play. And hey, props to whoever was in the US writing legislation and said, you know what's going to pass? Bald eagles. <laughs> let's get them. <laughs> let's get those fuckers on the books. And then all of exactly. a sudden... Yeah. No, okay, fair enough. That's a material lesson in, in the usage of charismatic megafauna to get things done. All right, well, I'm convinced. Yes. Sea turtles are great to conserve because they, in addition to being cool themselves, they also help us conserve other animals. That's good to know. Amazing. I'm so glad you're on board. Like socialism for animals. (laughs) Exactly.
Exactly. Hey, we're into that. Hey, that that hey, that seems like a really good catchphrase for environmental co- conservation that I think would do a great job at healing the divides around people who care about the environment. As if we start saying conservation, it's like socialism for animals. Yeah, we're gonna have to cut that one out of the show. Fuck me. All right, so that's everything I have about sea turtles. Thanks for listening, everyone. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for telling me about sea turtles. That time really flew or swam by. I, uh, oh, I feel like I learned an inordinate <laughs> amount about sea turtles. There can't possibly be more. What I'm saying is I'm now one of the world's foremost sea turtle experts. <laughs> Um, by proxy. No, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you, dear listener, are also one of the world's foremost sea turtle experts, if you've been paying attention. Um, well, hey, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our special guest, Nick Badulovich, for talking about his very, very interesting research. Yes, um, such cool stuff. Uh, if you did like the show, please, you can go do all the stuff that every podcast asks you to do that you never get around to doing. I know, I'm guilty of this <laughs> as well, like uh, leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. As a new show starting out, it's actually really like weird how helpful it is. So if you do like the show and you want to help us out, um, it's a very simple thing you can do and it would be great. Or just tell a friend, pass the show around, let other people know that you enjoyed it, even if this episode was relatively heavy on sad news about cute animals. Um, we'll try and, we try and keep it <laughs> real but we'll also try and keep the bummers to a minimum Taryn going forward all right (laughs) (laughs) um great well hey if you want to stay in touch you can check out um me at dr bt mcallister on twitter you can check out me at at science Taryn also on twitter great you can get uh the podcast network we belong to at curio network on facebook twitter or instagram or you can check out this show specifically at principal cast on twitter cool i think that's just about everything so that makes it time for us to include our wonderful tagline that we end every episode of the show with taryn stay uncertain she's done it all right is that what it is <laughs> yeah you've done it. okay great. thank you <laughs>